creating the web was really um, mainly an act of, act of desperation because the situation without it was very, very, very difficult when I was working at CERN later. Um, it was most of the technology which involved, involved in the web, like the hypertext, like the internet, multifont, text objects had all been designed already. I just had to put them together. Um, it was a step of generalizing all the uh, uh, sort of, of, of going to a uh, higher level of abstraction, thinking about all the documentation systems out there as being possibly part of a larger imaginary documentation system. But uh, then the engineering was, uh, was fairly straightforward. It wasn't, uh, and it was designed in order to make it possible to get at documentation and in, in order to be able to get people, uh, students working with me, contributing to the project, for example, to be able to come in and link in their ideas so that they wouldn't, we wouldn't, uh, if we wouldn't lose it all if we didn't debrief them before, before they left and so that people could. Really, it was designed to be a collaborative workspace for people to design a large system together. That was the exciting thing about it. When I left Oxford, I didn't have any role models for doing a second degree. I didn't know anybody who'd done one. I didn't know how I'd go about doing it. What I probably should have done is go to Berkeley and do a master's or a PhD in computer science, but I didn't know about that. Uh, so I went and joined a, uh, a uh, telecommunications company down on the south coast of England. And then, and I used the fact that I knew about microprocessors. And I was one of the few people that did, so I was in demand. And I was in demand as a consultant. At one point, CERN brought people in as consultants to help with the project, to do some programming, just for six months. So for the, for the second half of 1980, I and a bunch of colleagues were, were sort of parachuted into CERN to fix things, and we had to figure out what happened, what, what, what was wrong, what needed to be done, uh, and when we, uh, we need to build pieces of software, and these pieces of software are part of a very large system. So they had to interact with pieces of machinery and interfaces and other pieces of software. And it turned out that the way you found out, the best way to find out about these things that you needed to connect to was to talk to their designers over coffee. So the coffee center, in fact, the place where, where the corridors met and you could get a, a croissant and a co uh, coffee in the morning was a crucial place. But and I, I have a terrible memory for names and faces, and, uh, and this meant names and faces were part of the loop, <laughs> and I had to remember who to ask about each thing. And, um, but, and in general, I felt that one really needed, I needed to be able to track this. Now, the interesting thing about computer programs to that, uh, that point is they were good at storing things in, in tree structures and in matrices, but what they couldn't store very well was the random association. That, oh, by the way, this, when you're, you know, by the way, this, uh, mod this hardware module is right next to the coffee machine. Or, uh, and by the way, you know, so when you fix it, go and get a coffee. Also, uh, this, is, this person is also, when we, in real life, often we come across random associations which can be, turn out to be really important. Uh, the fact that, oh, you have something in common with somebody which will allow you to, to, to talk to them. The fact that the, the smell of the coffee as you go past the coffee machine takes you back and, and, and makes you remember that, that module and then helps your mind bring all that things, those, those things back. So I wrote a program which allowed me to write a little bit of text about something, but then it always, the only way I could introduce a new thing was by saying how it related to something else. 
So this is a module that's used by this one, and that's used by this one. So I track the dependencies through the system. And this describes that. So I track what, where the, uh, the documentation was for things. And this person created that. So I'd find out, so I could find out the people responsible, and I just stored that, the project, the, if you like, the, the rather tangled and delightfully tangled and, and interesting and exciting state of the project in this uh, program, which I just had for my own benefit. I tried to suggest other people use it. When I left, I left them with an eight-inch floppy disk um, on which the program was, which has, uh, I gave it to Brian Carpenter, who was the system manager there, later become, among other things, chair of the Internet Activities Board. Uh, but he lost it. Well, so somebody, <laughs> somebody lost it. So that program, is, uh, that program is gone. But it had random associations, and that was, a, that was an important step. The Inquirer was a side pro project done out of fun to, uh, to play a little bit with being able to store random associations, but always driven by and tested by whether it would actually help me so, uh, store them. I rewrote the Inquire program maybe one or two times uh, and poured it around with me. But, it, uh, as, but then as time went on, over the next decade, uh, computers changed. They had graphics, they had things like folders and point and click, and people started to use word processors. When they used word processors, they stored their data that they, they typed into the word processor on a disk somewhere on a machine, which generally wasn't accessible. So the frustration, uh, there was then a new frustration that data about these systems was available, but you had to log on to a special, particular machine. You had to type, a, learn a particular program to access it, to find your way through the library was totally different from finding your way through the documentation system of, uh, of an experiment. Um, so the data was there somewhere going round and round on a disk, but it wasn't, it was really difficult to get at. So there was a mixture, a confluence of ideas, I suppose. The frustration that we didn't have access to the data that existed, even though it was there. The need for a collaborative environment. I want something like Inquire, but where everybody could play so that people working together could, uh, could design something in a common shared space. Um, there was work that I'd done in between in, uh, with working for image computer systems that I'd done with communication protocols uh, and text processing, text uh, formatting, and macro languages and so on, which are very like markup languages, which was... Uh, um, and at that point, the computers at CERN, which had been on various networks, including an IBM one called BitNet, and a, a digital one called DECnet, and a CERN one called CERNnet, started to be connected together by the internet, the, the, the meta network that connect other net, connected other networks. And even though it was politically, um, it was, it wasn't proper to use the internet early on at CERN, you were supposed to wait until the uh, International Standards Organization had produced a set of protocols to use. Um, in practice, the internet was creeping across, it was become available. And Ben Siegel was a, uh, a mentor there who took me aside and, uh, and encouraged me to use Unix as an open system and use TCP IP, told me about TCP IP, told me what was happening, encouraged people to, to, to adopt the internet. So there I had the internet. I had the problem, I had all the tools 
uh, and I just needed to be given some spare time to do it. In those days, the, the terminal that you used to talk to a computer and the computer were separate boxes. So during, at Oxford, I started with uh, building a terminal. When I was, I got a job as a, um, working in a sawmill over the vacation to get money to go around Europe. And in the sawmill, I found this big, uh, there was a big dumpster and in the bottom, an empty dumpster, empty except for an old calculator, which had these rows of buttons. And I had, I had this dream of putting together a computer terminal. So I heaved it out and took it home and uh, removed the rows of buttons and then relabeled them with a QWERTY keyboard and, and then put diode, uh, sort of diode matrices on the back to produce the right code, for, binary code for each number. And then from, so from that I made the, made, like I gave me the keyboard. Then I got, uh, I went down to the TV store and asked the guy for a tea, whether he had a, any TVs which he could give me for cheap, which had Oh, which had a working monitor, but didn't have the, but where the radio frequency tuner had broken. And then he rolled his eyes and said, yeah, he sure did have lots like that. I could take my pick. I actually got two. Uh, so, the first, so I brought this uh, sort of at five pounds a time. So I brought back this thing, which was a monitor, and one of my friends at Oxford had told me, explained to me how all this valve circuitry in a black and white television worked, and how to find the video point where the one volt peak to peak video could be injected so that you could use it as a computer monitor. And then the rest of a computer monitor, the things which put all the dots on the screen in the shape of characters, is logic, which hardware logic, which I bought piece by piece and sold it up. So by the time I'd got to the end of my career at Oxford, on the side, I'd also got to put together a computer monitor with 64 characters across and 16 lines down. And because uh, that would use exactly one kilobyte of uh, memory. And uh, so then I needed a computer. Now I think actually I was one of that. That to be my, to be born in 1955 was in a way very special, because there I was in elementary school winding relays out of making solenoids uh, and relays out of out of wire, which is something you can do when you're in elementary school. Now you can actually build something which does a certain amount of logic. You can build a gate out of relays made out of pieces of baked bean can torn up and connected to little, uh, made into switches. And then those switches are operated by the electromagnets that you made out of nails and wire. So you could actually build an, a gate and therefore you could build a register and you could build a, the CPU of a, a computer and you can build memory units. So in fact, if you had enough time and enough power and enough nails, you could actually build a whole computer out of nails. But in fact, when my friends and I got into Secondary school, transistors came out. Transistors, you know, they'd been invented before. When we were in secondary school, it got to the point when you could buy a bag of 500 untested, that is reject, so untested, <laughs> transistors, take them home, find out which of them had been incorrectly tested and in fact worked, and then we used to grade them by what sort of gain, amplifying gain they had, put them in different boxes, and then use them to make circuits. And so we could use those to make much smaller circuits. Uh, and we made flip-flops, which remembered whether the train was going or not or which would uh, uh, stay in one state or the other, or which would stay in one state long enough for the train whistle to blow and then flip back to turn the train off. So there we had available the ability to make the logic in transistors. And we could have made a whole huge amounts of logic out of that, but it would have been really tedious and we would never have in practice been able to do it. But as it happened, just at that point, these little black chips came out. Right, just when we were going, when we needed at our point in our self-education, where the, these little black chips came out, which had 
maybe you know, tens or hundreds of, of transistors on each chip. So we could buy a shift register, and we knew how a shift register worked because we built the first one out of a few, you know, one Saturday with, 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 uh, with transistors. And then we could buy the whole thing all prepackaged. And so we could make things out of lots of shift registers. So, that, so there were lots of shift registers, in the, uh, each of which was just one of these little black bugs soldered into the, into, into the terminal. So that on the, riding that wave, there I am, 1976, I, need, I know now, I've got the, the experience with logic, as to, which I know how to build a computer. And I, so, and I know what it, takes to, what it takes to build a computer. I could have sat down and hardwired the whole thing out of that. But at that point, miraculously, fortunately, it turns out you could buy a slightly larger chip which actually had the whole processor on board, the M6800. Came out. So I bought an evaluation chip, the designer's evaluation chip set for a 6800. And I still have to solder a bunch of stuff, put a clock circuitry around it and memory, solder connect it up to memory circuitry. I had them on little cards, I guess uh, 3U high cards for anyone who's interested, and a little back plane with the M6800 uh, bus and plugged in, I think I had 256 bytes of memory, 256 bytes of memory when I started. And that was a lot of fun. And so I think what was, so I think the reason that we were really lucky is that we, as we needed to, to be able to just have the, it's like the cooking show where now we've got one in the oven which we've baked for 10 hours, you know. Now that you've learned how to make a computer, here's one, that, you know, here's to, to save you the bother, here it is. Um, so I spent the next few years designing computer languages to run on this really simple computer. Um, the little language is a bit like fourth. A friend of mine pointed me at a language, a very simple language called Forth. I made one called TimPL, uh, which was like Forth, but had, had parentheses in it. So that was, uh, so there was continuing education. Um, and in fact, but in fact, by that point, so at that point, I felt I was really lucky to know how a computer worked because I built one. I built it, I had it my terminal with its 64 line, 64 character lines. And I had it connected to, the, to my computer, which was in a crate this big with a big car battery at the bottom in case the, the power failed. Um, that, uh, and I knew how it worked because I knew how I could build, I could have built the chip out of gates and I knew how I could have built the gates out of transistors. And I didn't really know how transistors work, but I knew I could have made the equivalents of a transistor. I learned a certain amount from the, from, uh, from the physics course about how solid state systems work. Um, and I knew how I could build, emulate each of those out of nails. And that, so now when I look at a, a laptop, I see all those pixels and see the windows moving. I know that I could figure out, uh, I could build the operating system. I have built the operating, little operating systems since, but I don't know how whether anybody, anybody nowadays without going through that historical phase could ever feel that they really know how a computer works. There wasn't the web then, of course, but there was uh, um, the, these chips came with, uh, you could get a, the, the TTL chips, for example, came with this, the uh, de de designer's Bible, an orange book from Texas Instruments, which described how each of these things would work. That was, and, and they'd have just these two rows of pins that you had to solder in, and you needed the book to tell you which connection, which pin connected to what. And 
Some of the worst things I remember when my friend Nick and I would, would look at another page of the book and, and, uh, and, and, find, and there would be some long, complicated <laughs> description of a, of a circuit. We didn't really know what it did. <laughs> we couldn't, just couldn't, couldn't figure out what it, uh, what it did. But uh, I suppose there was, and there was uh, I mean, there were magazine articles, I suppose, about transistors, but mainly, um, Nick was a great reader. I was mainly, but, uh, but mainly we just, um, figured it out by connecting things together. I was caught uh, misusing computer equipment. Yeah, it was the line printer, in fact, yeah. So I got thrown off. That was another incentive to make my own computer, is I was, uh, I was thrown off the, the, the nuclear physics lab computer by assistant manager Joyce Clark, who, un who unfortunately knew my parents pretty well. had <laughs> worked with them. My parents were both mathematicians. They had uh, obviously had a lot of fun with math. Uh, so I grew up, I was the eldest, I am the eldest of four. We all grew up in an atmosphere where math was <clears throat> sort of, was, uh, interesting was everywhere. So uh, making clothing or making a pie or uh, involves some calculations and things. And uh, uh, I, I suppose when I was little, I had two friends in elementary school, and we would discuss science. We would we weren't weren't very athletic. We would walk around the playground and talk about chemistry and biology and and physics, and we would uh, wind electromagnets by taking wire from transformer wire and wrap it around a nail. Uh, and I remember the electromagnets didn't work very well because the nail you should put in, the book said you should put the nail in the hearth as it, in the embers of the fire and let it cool so that it was, uh, got the right temper. But we didn't have a fire <laughs> with embers. So that never happened and the, and the uh, nail would become a permanent, permanent magnet. But that was the first sort of um, interest in uh, in, I suppose, was to become later electronics. The three of us wanted to write a book, a, a book about science. Uh, we actually took the time, uh, then decided to uh, dig a hole in the, in the backyard to make an underground lab in which to write the book. So the book took, made slow progress. But uh, yeah, I think we were definitely headed in that direction. And, and then when in secondary school, I commuted on the rail, on the trains to uh, uh, to Emmanuel School in Wandsworth. And there, that school actually was between two train tracks. It was very difficult to escape from. And you were surrounded by trains. So a lot of kids were so they train spotted. And I joined the train spotters. And so I was, I, I had model trains. But halfway through that, I progressively I, uh, moved my interest from the trains to the electronics that would control them. And make things so that the train would stop at the station and then go and, and, and so on. Uh, I remember I had a Mobius loop type train track where the two tracks you could switch the, the points so that the train would go around one track completely and then switch to the other side and go around it completely and then switch back. Um, but then electronics became more, more interesting. Probably the absence of television for most of my upbringing must have had all good effects as that I become more and more convinced that it drains, as I tell my children, watching television drains your brain out to a small plug. 
Um, so uh, that I think later on, as I went through high school, then I came across a couple of teachers who were also great, uh, uh, who also, uh, Daffy Pennell, who taught chemistry, Frank Grundy, who taught math, both excited, just bubbling over with enthusiasm, just so excited about the idea that, so you could talk to them and they would just, after class, the class would all leave and they'd continue to talk excitedly about, about something that maybe was going out from the curriculum to something that they were actually personally more interested in. Or, uh, and Frank was great when he would put a problem on the board you would get for the class, you would say, okay, work this out for n equals two, and then for anybody who's interested, he sort of thought, is that true for all n? Or, or you know, is there a quick, better way of doing this? Just these little teasers. Or, we, or, or he'd, uh, he'd put up uh, some, uh, he, he put up, he'd end up with, having got through the algebra, with a sum to uh, uh, the difference between two numbers to the power of 3.5 or something. And he'd then write it down to three, decim three decimal places and, and straight off, we thought that was magic or he cheated. And then he'd explain how he'd use the binomial theorem or whatever it is, you know, and, and, and how to do approximations. So he was full of, uh, uh, I, I, guess, I, I guess it's the passion is the main thing and uh, just uh, letting it uh, radiate. So both of those were good mentors, role models. My parents met uh, in the team that was designing the first computer in the UK. That those days, the Manchester University had produced a thing called the Mach One, but well, sorry, had produced a computer which went for anti, took it over as a, to, for commercial production. They called it the Mach One. It was built at Franti in a little tin shed attached to the main building because it, didn't, it wasn't in a, a normal department. And my mother was one of the earliest programmers. She and uh, my father, uh, he worked in London, but he took the train up to Manchester a whole lot, increasingly, as he got to know my mother. And then they moved down to London when they had me. And uh, Franti's had an office in Putney, which later became International Computers and Tabulators, and then International Computers Limited. So they started off when the computer, when it was all of excitement about when the computer, a second register was added to the computer, second accumulator. You know. uh, and so I think when they started, all of these mathematicians were full of the idea that you could do with a computer, what you could do with a computer was limited only by your imagination. Right. And you could prove that. You could prove that, that if somebody else built another computer which, which was fancier, you could program your computer to emulate that computer and therefore, uh, therefore your computer could do whatever their computer does. So it's just a question of the imagination you can put into the, into the program. And that is quite a challenge. And I think later on with network information systems, people felt the same thing. This, wow, we can build huge systems and now on the web, what you can do with building a website, what you can do building a new web application, it's limited only by your imagination. And that's the challenge that's out for people today. When I was very small, maybe five or six, I was taken in to see, to, to daddy's work, to see a computer, and I remember it as being a big cabinet with a clock on it and with a desk 
with a uh, with a paper tape reader, a one box which was a paper tape reader, and one box which which, which was a paper tape punch. So I came home and put my uh, put a clock on my cupboard and put a desk in front of it, and I put one cardboard box, which you push the paper tape into, and one cardboard box that you pull the paper tape out, out of. And uh, so that was, <laughs> that was the first computer. When I was, as a teen, I read science fiction. I read Whodunits, Agatha Christie. Uh, I read John Wyndham, uh, Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, and... I, which I, sci-fi books had the problem that I tend to, if I, I'd either not read them or I'd get stuck into them and just and not stop and wake up in the, well, not, uh, and stop in the morning and <laughs> having finished the book, which would be uh, kind of disastrous for the next day. Somebody was af afraid of the web becoming, well, the web becoming itself a conscious being which would take us all over. And I, so I said, what do you mean like in Dial F for Frankenstein? So Dial F for Frankenstein is the Arthur C. Clarke, which things which embodies that. Uh, it's, for me, it's a label for that, that fear of the, of the web waking up like a baby taking its first cry. Um, so, but I wouldn't say that it was inspiration for, the, for doing the web. Math was my favorite subject, I suppose, at school. But on the other hand, I was interested in this electronics. So I thought I'd do physics as being a compromise between the two. It wasn't. It was something completely different, I realized. There was a lot of the philosophy of physics is different. And I think physics is pretty special. And, I was gl and I'm glad that I did do it. But uh, it, it was, did not prepare me. It did not turn me into a mathematician. And it did not really allow me to do electronics. It was allowed me to do it, but I think in uh, all, quotes, all sorts of interesting ways. And, uh, just, uh, and realize that the relationship between the microscopic and the macroscopic, the macroscopic, microscopic rules of behavior of atoms and the macroscopic behavior of the gas and so on is really interesting. And that difference is now crucial between the microscopic way in which two computers interact over the network and the way the whole web behaves, which we're now calling web science. The difference between the microscopic and the macroscopic is still a challenging step. College was uh, a really exciting time. Really one of the best times, uh, I suppose, suddenly being uh, an independent person, having all these exciting, interesting people, having the... I, for, I felt at Oxford the um, being, I suppose, blessed with the, the, the sort of mixed blessing of this huge weight of... Uh, what all those who had gone before through those hallowed arches and echoing cloisters, it, I found it was great to just to be to be in that environment to walk into the uh, uh, a library which was hundreds of years old. Um, I felt that that a lot of respect had been conferred upon all of us had been allowed to go there, and that it should be mutual. Uh, so. so that it was really a very powerful feeling to be somewhere that had just been, which has been created for study and learning. This is the place, this is a way of life that has been created for study and learning. And so there was, so that was, as we would now say, awesome to get involved, to, to be involved in. But, and then on the other side, of course, it's, it's such a lot of fun to be with so many people. 
and there's constant tension between whether you should be punting on the river up to the Victoria Arms for a pint or finishing the, uh, some more physics problems. And I realized that actually the physics problems probably wouldn't have gone so well if it hadn't been for the punting in between. And the punting would not have been so, had that incredible feeling if we hadn't known in the back of our minds that we ought to have been doing physics problems. I did play Tiddlywinks about Cambridge. You have, you have dug up all kinds of interesting little things that that is actually true. It's not as though that would characterize my life as a great Tiddlywinker. <laughs> I only to play Tiddlywinks once. It's just that I found out that some of my uh, friends in another college would go into Cambridge on a bus. My good friend Nick, that I did had all these childhood adventures with, with electronics, was at Cambridge. He went on to, uh, he switched to biology and genetics. Now he's a fellow of the Royal Society and a very respected professor of genetics up in Edinburgh. Uh, but so at that point he was in Cambridge and I wanted to go and see him. And I heard that there was a bus going, taking the entire, the entire Oxford University Tiddlywinks team for a varsity match, no less, of between the two universities. And so as I know the people on the Tiddlywinks team were not very serious people when it came to, these, this was not like a rowing team. So I found, so they, they said, oh, come on, you know, all you have to do is to, you have to learn a few terms, which have now completely escaped me, uh, and, but we'll probably get knocked out pretty quickly because the Cambridge people are really serious about Tilly Winks, and we're just up there for the ride. So I caught a ride and just got to, got to see Nick, uh, played Tilly Winks, played a little bit of Tilly Winks. The creative, process I think is really interesting. It's fascinating, uh, one, because it's essential to progress, uh, two, because it's really, uh, it's really exciting. I get a kick out of designing something, making something that works. I think we all do. We have different forms of creativity, but just as we get a kick out of um, skiing down a mountain, eating sugar, no, uh, we get uh, this visceral, uh, I don't know whether it's a dump of dopamine or people will tell us soon what it is. But we get it from solving a problem, from things falling into shape. Uh, it's interesting, the creative moment, the creative process, I should say, uh, which is not a moment. I think it's a long-term process. What's, I think what's interesting about it, the way it's inaccessible to us. We, can't, we can think of a lot, lot of thoughts, but it's, it seems to me, in fact, if we think too closely about the creative process. If we think, if, I, if we put our thoughts out sometimes in too much order on the page, nothing comes. That's when you get your writer's block. Uh, that's fine for, for, for writing a recipe. It's fine for writing a manual for how to put a car together. But if you're trying to think of a new, something new or you're trying to write, write a poem, then it has to be, you have to let everything flow. You have to make, the, the ideas have to be half-formed. And, and half-formed ideas we don't have language to express well, maybe that's what poetry is partly for, but uh, we, they, they float around, they come from different places, and our mind has got this wonderful way of somehow just struggling them around until one day they fit. They may fit not so well, and then we give it a munch, or, you know, or we go for a bike ride or something, and then they fit better. And then the more mechanical part, in fact, takes over and turns it into program. And I think that's exciting too, and we get a kick out of that too, taking the, to the I think it's fun to take the half-formed idea. I think it would be really nice if we could do this, if this program were to be able to do that, 
how can so I think it's a great it's a challenge really uh, to think okay now I now okay I can now tell you how to write the code to do that okay we're going to write this set of mod we're going to have this sort of types of objects and we're going to take the user interface apart this way so now you're going to be able to look at it this way and we're going to make it a whole lot simpler because otherwise we'll add too much complexity and sort of all that sort of process is really interesting too but the, but, the, but that time when the first uh, what people describe as the aha moment eureka moment I think the mo this idea of it being a moment. I'm very suspicious of. I don't actually believe that Arch Archimedes sat in the bath, saw the water up, and said, Eureka. I think he'd probably tried all kinds of things. <laughs> he tried ways of you know, filling the crown full of little marbles, maybe, you know, he, and, uh, and counting the marbles. Goodness knows what. No, he tried all kinds of ways of, est of estimating its volume. Uh, and then he figured, oh, goodness, yeah, water will do it. But, but he'd done a lot of preparation. Uh, and uh, and he'd had a lot of probably other sort of ideas pretty close to it, and in fact it didn't happen. Uh, if he'd have, if you'd have started him off on the problem totally fresh and sat him in the bath, nothing would have happened. It wouldn't have happened without him discussing the problem with people, without him starting to form all these hypotheses, half-formed things. So I think one of the challenges now is how can we do that better in groups. That was where I was coming from with the web originally. I wanted it to be something which would allow us to work together, design things together. Now, that really interesting part of the design is when we have lots of people all over the planet, for example, who have parts in their heads, they have parts of the cure for AIDS, right? part of understanding of cancer. Mankind does not have, humankind, excuse me, does not have the, an understanding of, uh, of cancer. But maybe we do have all these half, we have the half-formed ideas. Can we somehow use the web to transmit those half-formed ideas? Can we make it a space where I can leave a trail, express to you my half-formed ideas in such a way that you, who have the other part of it, or can see how to take it next, can see that, pick it up without, full, without still having a, a, a solution to the problem, and then lead, take it on to somebody else, or add a little piece to it, contribute your piece so that after a while, eventually, somebody manages to follow, put all the pieces together. And, uh, and solve one of these really big problems which, we, uh, which we've got before us now. What motivates a human being? Um, I think the excitement of solving problems motivates me. Motivated, motivated me. Um, also, I find it really working with other people. The excitement of doing things together is, is very, it's fairly visceral sort of thing. Um, I enjoy working with students who have got, got lots of fresh ideas. I enjoy working with people who have been in the business for ages and have got lots of you know, wisdom about it all. Um, I find there are other things uh, like flying all over the world, persuading the people that something is going to be a good idea, which I find that I'm not so good at. I know it, it, it takes a... Uh, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a natural fundraiser or a natural... You know, I'm not a natu some natural for uh, explaining to somebody that they, why they need to use the technology, which is what we have to do now with the semantic web. I'm using back in the same place as I was with the web in 1991. So in 1991, 92, every, every day I'd have to decide which to you know whether to write some code or 
go and persuade somebody else to write some code or uh, write some documentation or persuade somebody else to write some docu documentation or go and give a motivating talk somewhere explaining what the whole thing is supposed to be about. Uh, or try to argue with administration for funds or resources or uh, whatever it takes. And today, everything, the, the same sort of choices exist all the time and I have to balance my time and f find more things, uh, some things are more motivating than others. But I find to stay sane, I have to keep working with other people and I have to keep programming. I have to keep involved with the actual design. Well, let's snuff that, this myth out for, uh, for straight away. You, you, you suggested first, I could have been rich. No, I couldn't have been rich. Uh, I'm not a very good entrepreneur, uh, for, for one thing. Secondly, the internet was designed by people who did it as, uh, as the whole ethos of the internet, the Internet Engineering Task Force was a sharing of new ideas and a bootstrapping in the, the, the Doug Engelbert sense of, making systems which would allow us to communicate and so, uh, in such a way that we can then design systems even better because now we have email or now we have net news or now we have the HTTP. So the whole ethos was uh, of sharing the idea of, uh, of, of patenting it and try to run off with the keys to the castle that was uh, not part of the, uh, the world in which I lived. Uh, and also practically, had I done it, then I knew very clearly that everybody would have dropped it like a hot potato. There were a lot of, the people who were crucial to the pickup of the web were, for example, people in companies who probably had day jobs but were doing this out of interest, engineers who were, were picking it up. If there had been patents around it, their lawyers would have told them not to even read the code, not to download it, not to install it, not to read anything about it, in case they were tainted by something which would allow the company later to be sued. So similarly, somebody else in their, uh, uh, in their garage, their basement, just doing it for fun. They're doing it because they think it would be really exciting. Because they, they share the twinkle in their eye, Oh, they understand what it would be like if everybody had a web server, or everybody had a web page, and everybody had a web browser. So they're just going to do, some of the people who do it because it would be cool if everybody did, right? People doing that, well, they're not going to, and you suggest, oh, you're going to do it, and by the way, your work will actually be intellectual property belonging to you know, the, 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 this company. Whoa. So that uh, it, the, the web relied and still relies on people contributing to because they, they know it's an open, common system. They know this is the commons. This is our common grazing ground. It's our common uh, thoroughfare. It's the space that we are using together. They are only contributing because of that. When we make new developments like the data protocols, the, the, the data, web, data web, the semantic web, same thing again. There's a huge, everybody's excited about the new things which can happen. The new things which can happen when everything you can do on a, on a computer, you can now do on a phone. Uh, you know, as we move towards the mobile web, then whole new markets woken up. Everybody realized that these new markets, these new spaces, these, these new ideas, will all, there will be new spaces of things in which other things will be built, but they will depend on the basic web infrastructure being royalty free. It's always been like that. 
Uh, every now and again, we've had a hiccup when somebody didn't understand it, when somebody thought that maybe they tried to make a quick killing by, some, by somehow getting a stranglehold on it, somehow finding a way to, to, you know, to, to be able to limit your access, everybody's access to the web, and then, ha, they'd be able to charge for it. Yeah, and you, see, you know, and you could see that they had a different gleam in their eyes, but rapidly they found that really people treated them with the utmost contempt and, and programmed around them, went around them, uh, and left them having learned a lesson and generally picking up the pieces and, and moving on and joining the, uh, and joining the, this, oh, this world of openness, of open standards, of royalty-free standards. The web, of course, is not a network of computers. The, net, the web is a network of people. The web is humanity interconnected. Whenever anybody publishes a, well, it's a web page, it's published by somebody. When, whenever a web page is read, it's read by somebody. The links are made because somebody uh, felt that this was relevant to that. And, uh, so the web really is the uh, connected humanity. And so if we are worried about the web, it's because we're worried about humanity. And of course, there are all kinds of worries about that. Yep, there's worry that people can put on their the recipe is how to make atomic bombs. There's worry that people can put all kinds of stuff which really uh, doesn't help keep kids keep their, their eyes on a uh, sort of a straight and narrow and gets distracted with naked bodies or violence. And um, there, uh, there are worries that at one end of the scale, people will be able to design websites which are all linked together and all share a common fallacy, a common myth, and so that you end up with getting a cult, which can set itself up among people who only read each other's emails and uh, links, websites that only link to each other uh, in such a way that when the members of the cult meet somebody from outside the cult, they have no common language and can only, apart from shooting them. So things like the Heaven's Gate you know, story showed us that people can, in a group, share a common belief which is very, very damaging and really very, very bizarre, which just shocks anybody else. So there's one worry that the web will, could be a channel for these potholes of culture, which people would get trapped in very dangerously. There's another uh, constant worry that the web will just become the, sometimes it's called the McDonald's culture. That's what the French were worried about. When they put a con connection in across the Atlantic, to, from, uh, between America and France, they worried that the American culture, the pressure of American culture would rush down and everything would go down to the lowest common denominator, to the smallest language, small, the common language used by all the peoples of the world uh, as they feared McDonald's taking over their restaurants. I used this example in a, in a talk and uh, at a conference and when I got back to my hotel room, uh, I found that on the, just underneath the fold of the International Herald Tribune, which was delivered to my room that, room that day, was a story about the French farmer putting a chain around a half-constructed McDonald's and towing it away with his tractor. So yes, this was actually uh, a, a serious f fear for a lot of people in France about their cuisine. They had the same thing. They imagined for some reason that the pressure of the Louvre and all the French, the huge amount of French culture, you know, wouldn't push back up the other way. I think that's, you know, this is the reasonable fear to have, that if you connect everybody together, they will all end up take, talk, talking the same very uh, ineffective, very poor language, 
Um, and this will be the price we have for common understanding. So you know, on one side of it, okay, so if everybody talk, talks like teens, with, very, very, you know, with, with, with small, uh, small sentences, very, very simple ideas, and, but if they do it like teens across the planet without worrying about who they're talking to, without any initial um, uh, discriminate, natu- discrimination against particular types of people, but, you know, people of particular color, or, uh, race, or, or, or religion, or gender, then maybe the hope is maybe the web can lead to the world becoming more harmonious place to giving the greater understanding which we need for peace. And on, but will we have to pay for this by losing the depth of the culture? Uh, now, obviously, the depth of the culture oh, is, <laughs> is the, the, cult, uh, it's the cult problem. Now, I think that I have this, this happy optimism uh, about humanity, that actually we naturally steer away from these extremes. I think that naturally we behave in groups. Not, we don't spend very much time thinking about the whole planet and using lowest common denominator language. We spend some time. We may spend some of our time listening to a radio station which is about world affairs or reading a newspaper which is about world affairs. And, but a lot of the time we also spend look, uh, listening to a radio station about local affairs or about our particular form of folk music that we like. Uh, we spend a lot of or t- time working within either a geographic area or perhaps among a particular field or particular, uh, people who are interested in, in a particular music or something. So we exist in lots of different communities. Some big, global communities, some small, the limiting one being a community of one, but it, that it happens when I climb a tree and just sit on it and think to myself for a while, which I have to do every now and again too. I think that if you look at people, you'll find that they spread their attention between the large scale and the small scale. I think we've evolved to be people who need to do that. If we spend all our time in a tree, we go crazy. If we spend none of our time in a tree, we go crazy. So we balance it out. And by individually spending our time in these different communities, then we end up connecting them all together. We think locally, act globally, think globally, act locally. We, we connect these things together. So when we're, we're in something that looks like a cult, we do some global thinking and bring it out. When we look at something that looks too global, we do some local thinking and add a little color. Start a spin-off group that think, may, may think a little bit different. The challenge, I think, as we engineer the web as a, as, as a system, given that it is supporting humanity, is that we should make the web to support a very diverse sort of set of communities like this. This is a set of communities which have got structure on lots of different scales, every scale. This, we have getting on for 10 to the 10 people, that's one and 10 zeros, people on the planet. Uh, so there are 10 scales if you go up in powers of 10, 1, 10, 100, 1,000, 10 levels. And I think that all of those levels are important. And we have built, so we're trying to build systems which will allow each of those levels, communities of all those different sizes, to flourish and to be interconnected. There are governments, and there have been governments always that have tried to limit access to information. I think it's a slow process, but I think it's inexorable that connectivity uh, will, it slowly extends itself. People want it desperately themselves, individually. Um, 
governments realized bit by bit that actually having, co having communication is very important for the economic well-being of a country. People realized that, um, that trying to filter things is a losing battle. It sets you up for being, uh, for the, the, it makes the people who you filter out so much more energized and motivated to try to, uh, to try to get around the censorship. So I don't think I think I don't think it's a th something which a country can change overnight. But I think that we're seeing it change uh, inexorably, and so I'm I, I'm optimistic about censorship slowly being lifted. I think everybody has a moral responsibility, whatever, wherever they participate in the planet, to try not to do anything bad to start with, and then to try to do good things, having achieved the first. And so, uh, when so when we build when you build a system, in fact, it turns out that even though we are sort of I'm building the web, okay, so it's a program. And it allows a, a, a web browser to, or a web editor to talk to a server. It allows you to make links. But in fact, there's a social part to the design as well. The social part of the design is that if I, is that one, I psychologically would like to be read. I would like my output to be read. To do that, I'm motivated to make it of apparent value. So I try to put good stuff in it. I try not to lie. I try to be entertaining, maybe, or I try to be valuable or useful, depending on what sort of web page I'm writing. And also, to be, I realize, to be valuable, the only way I can really make my page valuable is to make links, to allow somebody who's got there but needs something related to it, to allow it to be a source for other things. So I collect things which are related to my page, and I make helpful links. So I do that. And because, and, and I'm motivated to do that because I want people to, uh, to, to come to my page because I want them to read. Sometimes, nowadays, it's because of advertising. Originally, it was just because people wanted to feel useful. They wanted to be, they wanted to be read just for the kudos. So there is this little system here. It's a psychological system, maybe an economic system, which involves people and links. And that is why the World Wide Web works, apart from the technical piece of the fact that when you click on a link, you go to another page. And there are an awful lot of systems which, uh, in fact, are, have a te technical part and intimately bound up with it as a social part. Most sy systems that even the most technical, geeky-looking person is doing, when you ask him why he's doing it, he's doing it for some social effect. He's doing it because he wants to solve a problem. Problem that he's got, maybe. I think often some of the best programs are written by people who uh, want to solve their own problems, uh, even though they're supposed to go out and do f find focus groups and ask general people in the street what the problems are. A lot of people do it for their own benefit or because for somebody very close to them, problem they see. So you'll find there's always a social motivation between these things. When we, the, the tricky thing is that when we make a system like this, there's the, there's the relationship between the microscopic and the macroscopic. I can make a system which allows it, me to make some links and you to follow it. How do I know that that would, world, would lead to a web of good stuff? Somebody designs the idea of a wiki, a place where anybody can, uh, can edit. They say, OK, the technical pieces, we've taken out all the access control. <laughs> the social pieces, this is your space. Please be careful. Respect it. OK. It worked. Who would have guessed? 10 years ago? Who would have guessed that a wiki would have worked? I think very few people would have actually believed it. I don't think that necessarily venture capitalists would have invested in it. But somebody had a gut feeling that it would, this thing would scale. Because actually, the kudos of having contributed to 
a Wikipedia page and the frustration of seeing, of, of avoiding, of, of being able to fix the fact that a Wikipedia page actually was slightly wrong and the, the satisfaction of being able to find more or less anything on Wikipedia all combined motivate the construction of Wikipedia. So Wikipedia is done with, has, has produced a huge social benefit. It's happened because the microscopic design scale of, of the wiki scaled up to this macroscopic emergent phenomenon of Wikipedia, which is not managed. So the, when computer scientists, or not, well, when a computer scientist designs something with a computer, they have to make sure it doesn't, the computer doesn't hurt anybody. When a web scientist designs something with millions of computers connected to each other, then a web scientist has to, Ha, the, 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 the moral responsibility they have is to think about what's going to happen on the large scale. What's going to be the emergent pheno phenomenon that happens to this? And try to, and then when, uh, when something happens, then to, normally we have to analyze it, <laughs> see whether it looks good, and then, and then make a new version which fixes the, the, the bugs in the original version. And so on, and so on. It's been a long journey. It's had, uh, the first part of it was, it was like, a, I, I've never done a, pushed a bobsled, but the analogy I use is the bobsled. It's, I, it looks as though bobsled teams start off pushing really hard, and the bobsled seems to be moving not at all. And then it picks up speed slowly. Everybody's still pushing very, very hard. And then at a certain point, you have to jump in because it goes over the edge and it's going faster and faster. And there was a bit of that with the web, starting forming the consortium, realizing that we have to have steering, we have to have some, uh, uh, we, have, we have to have some social structure around this to, to hold it together. So in all this pushing and all this jumping in and all this steering, there isn't a lot of time for looking back and saying, ooh, what a nice, you know, what a shiny bobsled. <laughs> or I bet we get to the one really fast in this bobsled. <laughs> Uh, and it's still going on. You know, it's not finished. There are lots of concerns about the future. There are lots of new things ready to be designed. Really, you have to think about the web technology at the moment and the use we are using it as being the tip of a very large iceberg. Okay, when, when the first internet messages were was, was, was sent, uh, or the first email messages, people, you know, did people, some people may have thought, wow, we have changed the world now. You can send a message across the world just by typing it, and it arrives within, before before you can read it out aloud. And so now, how will the world be different? As though, as though there's been a sea change, and now we're, gonna, we're, now we're gonna settle down to a stable life in our new world, wrong. The pace of change is increasing. It's not going, getting any slower. This, the web has happened, but it's one step. The web itself is, uh, it, it's, it, it start with, it's, it's part of the plan. We've got the data web, which we haven't got out there yet, and that's gonna have very dramatic effects going to make us much more powerful in the things that we do. There are going to be a lot more things built on top of the web. There are going to be layers and layers on top of the web. And all the time, computers are getting more powerful, people are becoming connected together, the world being smaller. So it's, uh, there is very little time for sitting back and thinking, oh, look what we did. I have never liked to put people on a scale. Uh, I, I don't think it's helpful. I think that people are, are all wonderful. They all have different talents. They all have something to contribute. I've worked with people who contribute in very different ways. 
some of them have contributed in a very introverted fashion, getting one piece of the system working. Others have done it in a very extroverted system, motivating, uh, blogging, speaking, traveling all over the world, trying to get people to move just in a particular direction. Uh, it's a very complicated system. Yes, it seems that, so I'm dubbed the inventor of the World Wide Web, so the role I have to play is to, I suppose, to speak for the web, to speak about what it's like to be the inventor of the World Wide Web, uh, to encourage people to study computer science, and not just computer science, uh, and physics and math, and, uh, and to um, point out that it's really, really exciting, really, really fun, and that it's only just beginning. So I've got these roles. Uh, they're not necessarily roles that I'm particularly good at. No, I wasn't. Uh, you know, what, I, what I actually did was write a program that happened to work. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think it's really important. I, you know, one message for people out there is that I'm just an ordinary person. Okay, I did, wrote this program fairly late in life compared to some people, who, you know, compared to piano prodigies. Um, and I'm just an ordinary person with ordinary faults and ordinary, you know, uh, who's uh, difficult to talk to on Monday mornings when they're grumpy and um, things. I make, I have really, I have lots of problems remembering people's names and getting and uh, and, and turning up at appointments on time. Uh, and uh, you know, and I'll get distracted easily, into, especially if there's some programming going on in the vicinity. So. Uh, so, every, so, and everybody is just a, just a person. We're all uh, we're all just a person. I think we're all you know we're all if you like, we're all divine in some way. We've all got that. We've all got sparks. We're all very very special, um, and that. So I so, I don't want to explain what it's like to be special because I'm not more special than anybody else. I suppose I could try all kinds of potted, aphorisms sort of work hard, stay off drugs sort of thing. Um, and maybe in this interview, we've had quite a lot of those come through about the math and physics of fun and, and, uh, and things. Um, I think, though, most, I think I would have to listen to them. I find that I, I, I would have to find out where they are and who they're coming from, because you can't really advise somebody or explain anything to anybody until you understand where they're coming from. If I'm put on the spot and forced to make general remarks to, uh, to, to people irrespective of where they come from, I think, I suppose that one of the things that people perhaps don't uh, realize, it, particularly when I, with this sort of inventor of the web title, is that uh, it's the, the, the way it's, it's, it's all been about people, the way it's all been about collaboration. Originally, the web technology was to enable collaboration. Everything I did at CERN was in collaboration with other people. The most exciting thing about it has not been, in fact, the technology at all. It's been the people I've been working with. It's been the spirit of collaboration. When initially the thing was released on the internet, the, uh, it went out in various obscure news groups, email messages, and I got messages back from people I didn't know at all on completely different continents and islands saying that they'd installed a web server or written a web browser, they'd, done, they'd helped in some way, introducing themselves with two lines and just joining in with lots of, uh, lots of enthusiasm, um, lots of creativity, and with their own very special different way of looking at, uh, looking at life and, uh, and with their own motivations. That has been really, really exciting. It's been, uh, get, when, me, the, when people like that have got together face-to-face, -to -face, it's been electric. The World Wide Web conferences we have, now the Semantic Web conferences as well, have just got a tremendous energy about them. So 
um, doing this thing, this, doing this web science is about building this a huge system together. And that's, and, uh, the, that spirit of collaboration, has, uh, in, uh, international collaboration, has been by far the most exciting thing. I suppose the biggest threat, I, if I have to name something, it's uh, some organization taking control of the system. Some organization control, getting between the arbitrary person browsing the web and the arbitrary resource and restricting what they can talk to. At the moment, the web is uh, it's an open space. You can put up a film. You can put up this film, and anybody can go browse it. If somebody tries, tries, tries to go to a site and look at a movie, for example, and then their, their internet provider says, oh, no, sorry, we sell you movies separately. So because we sell you movies, we don't want you to go to that site. Or actually, we prefer your children to have a... Um, we prefer your, we, we, we're worried about your children. So we don't want you to let see, see sites of that religion because we feel that religion could be harmful to them. Or perhaps we don't want you to see sites from that, that particular uh, political debate because we don't think that it shows our party off very well. No, you can see how that once, once somebody, whether it's a government organization or a commercial organization, once, if some, once somebody manages to control the, 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 the information flow on the planet, that is so valuable. It's really, really important that we keep it open, keep it neutral, that it must be managed with just public good as the goal by people who are dedicated to keeping it neutral. How would I want to be remembered? Um, as just a person. As a person, as uh, I think it's important to remember that I, was just a, uh, I am just an ordinary person I was just a programmer. I wrote a program. It happened to work. This could happen to you.